I envision a time in the in ten year future when we'll have a tricorder, and you at home will put a drop of blood on the tricorder, and it'll make five thousand measurements and operationally give you all the kinds of things we can get from Arafail now. That's Leroy Hood. He goes by Lee. And what he's describing pretty much sounds like science fiction. The tricorder analogy doesn't hurt. But so much of our technology today sounded like science fiction 20 years ago. Tiny touchscreen computers that everyone carries in their pockets. Algorithms that learn how to diagnose diseases by analyzing immune cells. To most people 20 years ago, those ideas sounded like a fantasy an out-of-reach vision of the future. But someone saw those visions and thought, I can build that. I can make that happen. And they did. Sometimes a lot more is possible than what we can see. And behind those possibilities are technologies big and small, and innovators like Lee. Today, we are wrapping up the first season of Health Tech with one of the most influential health innovators of the past century. Lee Hood is one of the inventors who broke open the frontiers of health and reshaped how we think about and study biology. Even today, at 79 years old, Lee is still thinking about how we can make the future of health better. We'll tell you how he plans to get there and how technology is already paving that path. From GeekWire.com in Seattle, I'm Claire McGrain. Welcome to Health Tech, the podcast where we take you to the cutting edge of digital health. Stay with us. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, leveraging best-in-class digital tools to relentlessly reimagine health and healthcare. Follow them on Twitter at ProvInnovation, that's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V innovation. Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, making it easier, more collaborative, and more rewarding to take charge of your health. There have been endless articles and profiles written about Lee, but one line I read really stuck out to me. It's by a Harvard geneticist named George Church. He said Lee wasn't afraid to embrace the engineering side of science. That really struck me because today engineering and science, and specifically biology, are so intertwined. I asked Lee why he was interested in engineering even back in the 70s when they were separate and distinct practices. Well, let me tell you how I first became comfortable with engineering. My father was an electrical engineer that worked for uh, AT&T in very small town in Montana. He used to give in the summers courses to his men on circuit design and systems engineering and had me take the courses, I think, mostly to show me off. I hated them at the time, but I ended up learning a lot of engineering, and it shaped how I thought about biology. That attitude wasn't popular. Combining different kinds of sciences was much more rare back then. Biology was all about chemistry and molecules. Engineering was in a building on the other side of a campus somewhere. I'll tell you, when I went to Caltech, I told the chairman straight off, I wanted to do two things for my career at Caltech. One was to develop new technologies that opened up new areas of uh, data space for exploration, and the second was normal biology, uh, molecular immunology at that time. And so I started immediately working on the technologies, and after just three years, he came into my office and said, luckily, I hate to tell you this, but I want to advise you in the strongest possible terms to give up all this engineering and focus only on your biology. 
And I said, no, I wouldn't do it. I was really committed to the uh, technology. And the irony was about two months after that, I got tenure at Caltech, which is very, very early. So it wasn't a question of whether I was doing proper biology to get tenure. It was, it turned out 25 years later, he confirmed to me, it was that all the senior biologists felt uh, it was unseemly to have engineering and biology, and they actually wanted to move me over to engineering, which he refused to do. Lee turned out to have the right idea. Today, engineering and biology are close bedfellows, and many of the advances we've made in health rely on technologies like the ones Lee invented. With help from other Caltech researchers, he invented the first automated DNA sequencer. That machine was a game changer for the Human Genome Project, one of the biggest biology projects in history. Other devices he built led to breakthroughs like a new treatment for AIDS. Lee left Caltech in 1992 and joined the University of Washington, where he founded the Department of Molecular Biology. It brought biologists and engineers under one roof. And in 2000, he founded the Institute for Systems Biology. It's a term that he coined to describe looking at biology in a new way, as an integrated system instead of isolated chemical interactions. Finally, in 2014, he co-founded Aravail, a startup that offers customers personalized health coaching based on their genes and other biologic data. He calls that approach scientific wellness. Lee's view of biology is a unique one, and it shapes just about all of his work. What you admit is it's incredibly complex. And when you get started, you aren't going to have the faintest idea about what's happening. And, and that's one of the reasons that big data has really revolutionized biology. I like to liken the big data of scientific wellness as being equivalent to the Hubble telescope. So the Hubble telescope was able to look out and examine the heavens with a resolution heretofore unachieved. And exactly the same is true of of the what we call them dense dynamic personal data clouds. These let you view biology and disease with a resolution we've never before had. Hearing Lee talk about how complex biology is reminds me of another innovator, a philosopher called Occam. You've probably heard of his most famous theory, Occam's razor. Basically, that the simplest and most obvious solution is probably the correct one. In biology, the law of Occam's razor almost never works. And it never works because of Darwinian evolution. And Darwinian evolution, that is mutation followed by selection to expand out individuals that have the favorable mutation. And it never works because Darwinian evolution can't start over with a brand new slate when it wants to do something. It has to build on what existed before. And so if that's complicated, then when you build something new, you make it even more complicated. So the law of Occam's razor is deceptive and maybe functionally operable in uh, certain kinds of games, but certainly not in biology. Biology's complexity means there's still a lot we don't know about our own bodies. Yes, we can sequence people's genomes and engineer cells to kill cancer, but there are some basic things about biology we're still learning about. For example, organs. We just don't have very good ways to focus on what's happening 
in a particular organ. Yet from systems thinking, brand new approaches are coming out and we're thinking about developing techniques to uh, to be able to uh, interrogate those informational possibilities. Of course, these technologies have a dark side, or a potential one at least. It's one you see all over pop culture. The parent who plays God to create a designer baby with specific genes, or the crazed dictator that grows super soldiers in test tubes. As a species, we are deathly afraid of a scientist in a lab dictating how we look or act or live our lives. And someday we may have reason to worry about that. But the reality is that we are decades away from having the technology that can manipulate humans like that. Well, you know, there's a lot of discussion these days of uh, being able to do genome engineering and really change cells and change animals and so forth. What I would say is most of the changes that we can do are really simple little changes. For example, we can take a disease caused by a single defective gene, a type of hemoglobinopathy, and we can cure the individual of that disease by by modifying uh, its uh, hematopoietic stem cells. But if you think about anything that you really want to do, intelligence, uh, aggressiveness, those are all complex multidimensional physiologic and mental events that we don't understand. You can't engineer things that you don't understand at all. So I think we don't have to worry about engineering that will will generate some of the things comic books imagine uh, for the indefinite future. We've got a long ways to go. For, For example, in understanding how the mind works and how we can manipulate it. We're safe from comic book villains for the moment, but there are plenty more mundane challenges to deal with in health, and many of them don't have anything to do with science. How do you prevent discrimination based on health data? And how can you make all these cutting-edge technologies affordable? I'll ask Lee those questions after the break. GeekWire's Health Tech Podcast is brought to you by Providence St. Joseph Health's Digital and Innovation Group, helping to shift the industry from sick care to health care. Providence St. Joseph Health empowers people to take a greater role in managing and improving their health. Building on Providence's history as a disruptor, the Digital and Innovation Group leverages best-in-class digital tools to reimagine a better consumer experience in healthcare. Building healthier communities requires meaningful and personalized relationships that make Providence St. Joseph Health a trusted partner in people's lives. Follow the Digital and Innovation Group on Twitter at ProvInnovation. That's twitter.com slash P-R-O-V innovation. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Health Tech. Today, we're talking about the past and future of health and how technology is tangled up in that timeline. All of the most prominent technologies in health today rely on one thing, data, big data, personal data, genetic data. Data is the bread and butter of health technology. Aravale, the startup that Lee founded, creates a 360-degree view of a person using their data, things like their genes and their gut biome, all the microscopic organisms living in their digestive tract. Aravale calls that profile a dense, dynamic data cloud, and it's the basis for their wellness and health coaching program. Lee says that data can tell a doctor a lot about someone and how they should maximize their health. I think the genome is where it all begins, and... There are fundamental things we can discover from the genome now that are 
I think, really very exciting. One, for example, there are about 300 variants that control athletic injuries and and so forth. So if you know you have a predisposition for that, often you can do exercises to avoid that kind of thing. Number two, almost all of us are deficient for genes that are important in nutrition, uh, metabolism, and things. And knowing those defects, then you can add supplements or minerals or vitamins that take care of those. So I think the genetic level is one really important level. I think clinical chemistries and knowing all the different things they reflect are interesting just because these are what doctors have used for a long time. And they have many, many, many literature examples of how low levels of this means this, and you want to avoid vitamin D. If you have long, long, prolonged periods of low levels of vitamin D, you're much more susceptible for Alzheimer's disease. So if you have a genetic predisposition for that, you don't want to tempt it with low vitamin D. But but see, these things are all things that you yourself won't have the information to deal with. And I think that's why what Aravale, who's interested in scientific wellness, has done is, is really was a stroke of genius when they realized, you know, you could do the 360-degree survey, but you needed scientific wellness coaches to be able to understand how that information translated into actionable possibilities, and then how to deliver the actionable possibilities to the individuals in such a manner that they're willing to change their lifestyle and their patterns of behavior in order to take advantage of that actionable possibility. So I think we're really fortunate to have these coaches that can make us translate our chemistries into greater wellness. It's easy to imagine a sort of utopia from Lee's description, a world where everyone is maximally healthy. Diseases and even injuries can be prevented before they happen. But having all this health data also comes with risks. Of course, privacy and security is a big one, but technology companies generally do a good job of protecting health data. Lee said he's much more concerned about a tougher problem, one that's harder to pin down. I think the one problem that has not been solved is discrimination. And the reason that problem hasn't been solved is that the we have laws that govern health insurance, but they don't and, and protect them from discrimination. Laws both in Obamacare and and uh, and other laws as well. But we, we don't have laws that include other kinds of insurance like disability life and long-term care. So one of the imperatives that we must do in the near future when we have a rational government is attempt to push through appropriate laws that prevent discrimination in any way, shape, or form, either from employers, from insurance companies, or even from families. Like discrimination, possibly the biggest challenge facing health technology isn't about science or about technology. It's all about money. 
Healthcare and health insurance in the U.S. have been a huge talking point nationally. And basically, it comes down to healthcare is too expensive. People don't have insurance or are underinsured, and so they don't prevent problems well. That means that they're more expensive to take care of later, and as a whole, we just keep paying more and more for healthcare. Of course, that isn't the only reason that healthcare is so expensive, but it's definitely one of them. Scientific wellness is an even better way to prevent problems than just making sure someone has insurance. But it's also super expensive. If we can't, as a country, make sure everyone has health insurance, how are we ever going to make sure people have access to cutting-edge technology like the personal dynamic data clouds that Lee is talking about? Lee says it is possible, but it will take time and a few big changes to make scientific wellness spread on a wider scale. I would say one scientific wellness is very expensive. And the hope there is that all of the assays that we're employing now are more or less undergoing a Moore's Law decline so that in 10 years, the cost might be 5%. So that will become very much more reasonable. I think number two, we are at Providence now starting a clinical trial on scientific wellness with a 1,000 Providence employees and a thousand control employees. And it's a three-year trial, and we want to do two things. One, determine the extent to which health or wellness for individuals has improved. And most important from the payment point of view, we want to show the enormous savings that scientific wellness brings the healthcare system. And that's what will be necessary to make the payers take scientific wellness seriously. You asked me earlier, you know, how do you get people to accept these difficult uh, new ideas? The way you do it is, in, in this case, show that it's really going to help their pocketbook in a major way. And, uh, and I'm quite confident it will, I think, from what we've already seen, there's there's no question about that. So I think on the one hand, making things far less expensive, e- easier, and I think we'll migrate actually all these tests from laboratories and the hospital to the home. I think in the future, we're going to do everything in the home more or less, and you'll send the test results off to an analytics center, and maybe there'll be an avatar that will call you up and be your... Uh, scientific wellness coach and give you the results and all of these kinds of things. I mean, one of the issues we have to think about in the future is the idea of how we scale scientific wellness. And one of the biggest limitations are the coaches, because each coach can at best perhaps deal with 100 people and, and maybe with help and software and things like that. Maybe they could even deal with 500. But if you're talking about 350 million people in the U.S., that's a horrendous number of coaches. So are there other ways we could do coaching in the distant future? That's a, and avatars, I think, would be a, one really exciting possibility. Given all these exciting possibilities, I was curious what Lee would want to do if he was a young scientist coming into the field today. So I asked him. If you were entering into the, the health landscape as it is right now, the scientific landscape, what would you want to be working on? What area would you want to go into? I'd want to work on exactly what I'm working on right now. 
I had I'm, a feeling you would say that. I, I, I want to bring systems medicine and P4 healthcare and uh, scientific wellness into the healthcare system. I want to use these dense, dynamic personal data clouds as a fundamental part of every clinical trial. Two quick definitions here. P4 medicine is another healthcare model that Lee pioneered. The four Ps are predictive, preventative, personalized, and participatory. And a clinical trial is when a treatment is tested in patients before it's approved by the FDA. Every treatment has to go through this process. The really exciting thing we can think about doing now is rather than having clinical trials of 20,000 individuals where you average disparate individuals and get terrible results, we'll start with a clinical trial of 50 using the dense dynamic data clouds, and we'll ask just three simple questions. One, can we stratify that disease into its major subtypes? Two, can we distinguish the individuals who respond to the drug from those that don't? And then three, can we identify off-target hits that are the toxicities uh, that some drugs have? With that 50-person study for a year or two, the drug company can then decide if it wants to go to the second stage. But what's interesting is the second stage is with 50 patients. Only the patients are all responders to the drug. So when you do the study, you'll get a 98% success rate. And you can actually go to the FDA with 50 patients if you have a 98% success rate and get drug approval. So this is how we're going to revolutionize for pharma what they do, for healthcare what they do, and especially we're going to optimize wellness for the individual to make them healthy and vigorous and engaged and participating in life in the the most effective way they can. So that's what I want to do for the next uh, 20 years, and I think we'll do it. I want to leave you today with Lee's vision of the future, how we as patients will experience healthcare in 10 years' time. Hearing this kind of the array of possibilities with the 360 look at your your genes and your health, you could imagine a world where um, someone's genetic profile is taken when they're born or before they're born, perhaps, and they know the predispositions that they have and they're able to kind of from the moment they're born modify their nutrition and their exercise to be maximally healthy. Do you think that is in our future? That Absolutely. level? Yeah. I think that's a superb suggestion. I'd like to see that happen tomorrow. There are ethical and other kinds of issues, and there, there are technical issues because with the young, we can't get the same kind of data clouds because you can't draw enough blood to do all the tests that are required now. But we're developing technologies that are going to make – I envision a time in the in 10-year future when we'll have a tricorder. And you at home will put a drop of blood on the tricorder and it'll make 5,000 measurements and operationally give you all the kinds of things we can get from Aerofail now. And once that's happened, of course, we'll be able to do uh, easily to do tests on the, on the infants as well.
Lee Hood is a biologist and a pioneer of genomics and biotechnology. He just retired from his role as the president of the Institute for Systems Biology, and he now serves as its chief strategy officer. These days, he's also advocating for systems biology and P4 medicine as the chief science officer at Providence St. Joseph Health, which affiliated with the Institute in 2016. You can learn more about Lee's work and all the science and technology we talked about on this episode at systemsbiology.com and at aravale.com. That's A-R-I-V-A-L-E. Thank you for listening to the finale of our first season of Health Tech. It has been a blast to create this season, and I hope you have enjoyed it along the way. This will be our last episode while we take a break, but keep an eye on your feed for season two. We don't know exactly when it will launch yet, but I can say that we're working on some very exciting stories. Health Tech is reported and produced by me, Claire McGrain, with editing and story help from Todd Bishop. Thank you to our sponsor, Providence St. Joseph Health, and check out geekwire.com for all our coverage of health technology and biotech. Until next time, thanks for listening.